The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the 27th of November 2019 and we're going to take up today a story from uh, The Hidden Lamp, this compendium of um, stories about um, uh, Buddhist women. It's called, uh, uh, has a subtitle, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women, and it's edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And the story we're going to take up today um, is, is entitled Yashoda's Path. Um, and I picked this one um, today for a variety of reasons. Um, I just spent a week doing a, a home retreat um, and this, this particular story is um, one of the things it's about, is about practicing at home. Um, and also we're coming up with, to our holiday period and there are going to be um, periods when the centre is not open um, for formal sittings and people may have more free time so um, sitting at home may be um, happening more over these next um, couple of months perhaps. Um, and also the other reason for t picking the story right now is that in a, I think it's a couple of Tuesdays from now we'll be marking the Buddha's enlightenment um, with a ceremony um, and we tell a kind of a simplified version of that story of his, of his awakening in the ceremony. But this particular story, um, you could say, looks at it from another angle, from a different point of view and it's quite refreshing in that way. So let me just read you the story first. Um, and then um, we'll, we'll have a look at it. Yashodara's path. <clears throat> Yashodara was Siddhartha Gautama's wife. In one of the less well-known stories about her life, Yashodara, the glorious one, and Siddhartha had been married in many previous lifetimes. The night that Siddhartha left home, Yashodara had eight dreams that foretold his awakening, and so she allowed him to leave her. They <coughs> made love before he left, and their son, Rahula, was conceived. For the next six years, Yashodara remained pregnant with Rahula, and although she did not leave home, she traveled the same spiritual path and experienced the same difficulties as her husband, Siddhartha. She gave birth to Rahula, meaning moon god in this particular story, on the full moon night of the Buddha's enlightenment. She prophesied that Siddhartha had awakened and that he would turn, return six years later. Later, she and her son Rahula both became part of the Buddhist Sangha. 
So some of you may um, think you're familiar with the story of the, uh, of the Buddha and his home leaving and um, be wondering about the story because it's different from the, um, the usually told version. Um, in that version, Rahula is already born when the, when the um, Siddhartha leaves. He's just a week old. And, that, and Siddhartha leaves without waking his wife to say goodbye to her um, because he's afraid that if he does, he'll lose his resolve and be unable to leave. Um, and there are other, other variations in the story, and we'll, we'll get to some of those um, in a few minutes. Um, just, just to say a little bit more about our three protagonists here, Yashodara, Rahula, and, and Siddhartha, the future Buddha. We don't know a huge amount about Yashodara, except that she was, of course, exquisitely beautiful. And um, she marries uh, Siddhartha when, when he, he's um, 19 years old. And um, we also know that she was, she was like the Buddha himself. She was from um, the warrior class and uh, came from, within, um, from another town near where um, Siddhartha's town was, but in the, in the sa within the same um, clan, the Shakya clan. A little detail about them. Um, this is from uh, Robert Thurman, Tibetan teacher, um, a scholar, and his book called Inner, Re Inner Revolution. And, and he tells the story of um, Siddhartha and Yudhishthira um, getting married. He says, He was wed to a beautiful and noble girl, Yashodara, the daughter of a warrior, and the young couple lived blissfully for ten years in a continuous round of pleasure. In one story, they make love so enthusiastically that in their absorption, they fall off a pavilion roof and land softly in a flower bed without taking any notice. Eventually, Yashodara gave birth to a beautiful boy. And this is, this is um, uh, Rahula, who we'll talk about in a minute. And in the, in the traditional story, um, it was the social custom at the time that when the, the grandson was born, that, would sig that was signaling um, the king's retirement in favor of his son. So it meant that Siddhartha was now the crown prince. He was proclaimed the crown prince. And a d date was set for him to take over the running of the kingdom. But this this pressure or this this expectation that that was coming up for Prince Siddhartha um, brought all his discontent and his questions and his doubts to the surface, um, and he made these these um, four uh, trips out of the out of the 
um, the palace to learn more about the world so that he felt he was a little bit prepared for taking on this job of, of um, being responsible for the kingdom. And I'd like to read one version of this which um, really, really humanizes the story. And this is, this is from uh, a version of the Dhammapada, the introduction by Ignath uh, Eswaran. Finally, desperate to ease his tormented mind, Siddhartha persuaded his father to agree to a day outside the walls of his estates. Recalling the prophecy at his son's birth, this was that if he, had, if he was um, encountered sickness, old age and death, then he would be moved to give up his, his path to becoming a king and take up the spiritual life. This was a prophecy made when, when Siddhartha was born. So recalling the prophecy at his son's birth, King Suddhodana made sure the city was ready. No one poor, no one sick, no one unhappy was to be present along the prince's designated route. Yet despite all precautions, among the cheerful, cheering crowd who turned out to greet him, Siddhartha happened to catch sight of a man whose face was sallow and drawn and his eyes glazed with fever. What's the matter with this man, Chana? he asked his charioteer in horror. That is disease, master, Chana replied. All are subject to it. If a man is mortal, disease can strike him, even if he be rich or royal. Siddhartha continued on his excursion, but could not forget the pallor of the man's face or the haunted look in his eyes. The next day, Siddhartha ventured out beside the city again. This time he saw a bent, wrinkled woman faltering on her staff. Siddhartha regarded her with compassion. Is this disease too, Chana? he asked. No, master, Chana replied. This is only age which overtakes us all. Will my wife become like that? he asks. Yes, master, even Princess Yashodara, beautiful as a full moon in a mark cloudless sky, one day her skin too will be wrinkled and her eyes dim and she will falter in her steps. Chana, I have had enough. Take me back. But in the palace Siddhartha found no peace. Before long he ventured out a third time and on this occasion he saw a corpse stretched out on a bier for cremation. What is that, Chana, which resembles a man but looks more like a log? That was once a man, master, but death has come to claim him. Only his body remains. Death will come for all of us, rich or poor, well or ill, young as well as old. Even for my newborn son? Yes, master, he too will like, lie like that one day. The prince closed his eyes and covered his ears but a bomb had burst in the depths of his consciousness and everything around him seemed edged with mortality. On his way home, a fourth sight arrested him, a man seated by the roadside, his body upright and still, his countenance radiant. Chana, what kind of man is that? Is he dead too? No, master, that is a bhikshu one who has left the worldly life to seek what lies beyond. When the body seems dead, but the spirit is awake, 
That is what they call yoga. Yoga meaning any practice. So um, in this version of the story, we get this real, real emphasis on his ex appreciating these four sites um, from the perspective of his own family members and how it will affect them. So it becomes even more personal than just his, his being responsible for the subjects in the kingdom, but becomes something very immediate to him. The other, the other character here is Rahula, the child, the baby. Um, later on, Rahula um, becomes a monk at, at a young age, between about seven and nine years old. And um, the story of, of his entering into the, into the, um, the Sangha as a monk, um, happened, this happens when the Buddha comes back after many years to visit his family and Yashodara sends Rahula out and tells him to say to the Buddha I've come for my inheritance give me my inheritance and the Buddha then has him ordained and says I don't have I don't have riches to give you anymore I have the Dharma so again it becomes it becomes something very personal when he, he brings his own son into the, into the Sangha. And because of his young age, uh, after his time, he was, he was um, regarded as a kind of patron or guardian of novices, young monks. And um, he probably um, died young, before, before the Buddha himself. Um, there are a lot of different uh, stories told about him in the um, Pali tradition. Um, he's known as one of the ten great disciples of the Buddha, and each of these disciples has a kind of an epithet that goes with them for what they were most skillful at, you could say. And for Rahula, um, he's, he's called foremost in quietly doing good. And um, what comes out in the various stories is that because he's the son of the Buddha, he looks a bit like him, and so he gets a lot of extra interest, sometimes jealousy from other monks, practitioners. But that he, he develops um, in, in time into um, somebody humble and un, unassuming, not, um, not regarding himself as, as special, not thinking that he should get special treatment, because he's the, the son of the Buddha, but somebody who just quietly kept the precepts. Um, not flashy or um, uh, trumpeting his own, um, it's a virtue, but just, just quietly practicing. And um, uh, I didn't find any stories about his, uh, how he died, so perhaps he just he just disappears from the, the accounts, and that's how, why they guess that he died um, before the Buddha. Um, 
Um, so in the, if we go back to the, the, the sort of more classically accepted story of, of um, the Buddha by way of, of, the, this, of Rahula, um, by way of contrast to the story we're told here, um, it's said that when he's born, when the child is born, the Buddha cries out, or Siddhartha at that point cries out, um, uh, um, what's the word? Um, hindrance, in the sense that he saw his son as a hindrance to his being able to, to leave home and, and um, leave the world, so to speak. Um, and so his name, the name traditionally Rahula means hindrance. Um, you can imagine that, that um, such a name might give you a bit of a complex <laughs> and add to the pain of your having been abandoned by your father at, at an early age. And so this, this story that we have here, this latest story, um, is presenting another possibility. It's, it's kind of changing, changing the story and, and saying, no, Rahula doesn't mean hindrance, it means moon god. It's pointing to his having been born at the same full moon um, night or, or as the, the Buddha's Great Awakening. And in the, you know, in the, the traditional, traditional story, uh, there are various aspects which you can read as being, um, uh, you could say, um, there, in, in the way it's expressed, a certain um, aversion to uh, the world, to, to the feminine, uh, to, the, to the physical and the earthly. Um, example of this, this is again is from um, Eswaran. Um, as he's about to leave, he's, he's making his great renunciation and leaving, um, he passes by um, uh, this bunch of, of, of dancing girls. And there's the story that um, Sudadana, his, his father, could see that he was wavering, that he was starting to go down the path of, of um, making, asking questions about life and so forth. And so he thinks, oh, well, he must be tired of his marriage. Let me provide him with courtesans. So he, he finds the 10 most beautiful girls in the, in the, um, in the kingdom and um, arrange, arranges for them to um, dance for, for um, the court. And here's how the story goes. The performance went on past midnight. Finally, the last guest left, and the courtesans, tired of waiting on the prince's pleasure, fell asleep. One by one, the lights burned out. Only Siddhartha remained awake, scarcely aware of the world, brooding over a still unconscious choice. Sometime in the early hours of the morning, it was, the chronicles tell us, the first full moon of spring. Siddhartha looked around him in the shadowy hall and saw a chilling sight. The dancers lay snoring in postures in which they had fallen asleep. In the moonlight, the lithe bodies that had seemed so lovely in silk and makeup looked coarse and offensive in their disarray. 
The chroniclers say that it was a conjuring trick of the gods who wanted the prince to reject the pleasures of the world and seek enlightenment. But no such explanation seems necessary. For a moment the curtain of time had gone up and Siddhartha had seen beneath the tinsel of appearance past the strange illusion that makes us believe the beauty of the moment can never fade. In that moment he resolved to go forth from the life he had known, not to see his family again until he had found a way to go beyond age and death. For a long moment he lingered at the doorway to his bedchamber, watching his, his wife and son asleep in each other's arms. Young, delicate, full of tenderness, they seemed now to stand for all creatures, so vulnerable in the face of time and change. Afraid his resolve might fail, he did not wake them. So this is a, a fairly sensitive rendering of the story, um, but there are others which are more, more um, you sent this, 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 um, this uh, um, distaste for, for, um, for the body and for, for, for um, women as temptresses. And so the story that we're given um, is, is providing us with something, some, another perspective on how um, this, this, this home leaving might have, the, what it could actually mean and so let me just go back and, and relate this, this story that we've got here again, and then we can, um, we can look a bit more deeply into it. Yashodara was Siddhartha Gautama's wife. Yashodara and Siddhartha had been married in many previous lifetimes. So um, here immediately, an emphasis is put on the on the, the the strength of their connection, and the fact that they have been in relationship lifetime after lifetime. The night that Siddhartha left home, Yashoda had eight dreams that foretold his awakening, and so she allowed him to leave her. So, again, this the eight dreams. Um, will later guide her in her practices that she did um, on her own after the Buddha left because she she saw in images what what he was going to go through in his in his um, spiritual source and and there's this now this element not in the original story the earlier story she says at one point she holds up Rahula and talks about how um, um, Hard, hard. Um, how cruel it was for the Buddha to leave her and her child, and of course, one can understand that that she she might, as as a um, a young mother, feel very strongly about that. But here we have instead, she allowed him to leave her, so she's given an some interior more uh, more. Um, Agency, you could say, she's not so much just the the the, the human um, victim of the situation, the one being left behind, so to speak, and we don't hear anything more after that about her, but actually um, coming to this situation with some awareness and and making a bodhisattva move of saying, yes, you must go. This is something you must do, and I'm not going to stand in your way.
And then, before he left, they make love. So, very different from this other version where the, the, where Siddhartha doesn't even wake her, okay, scared that then he, he'll be still too, too, it'll be too hard for him to leave. And there's something um, very free in this, that even though they're going to be separated, they know that they're going to be parted, they're able to um, make love. So what it's pointing to, one could say, is that it's not the contact, it's not the, f the physical contact or, or the sexuality that is, is the problem, but, but how we approach it, what our attitude towards it is. It's whether we, um, whether we get stuck in it or not. It's a more it's a more sophisticated understanding. Less less um, black and white. And then we have this mythical this <laughs> this this uh, rather uh, big jump that we have to make, where we we learn that Yashoda um, remains pregnant for the next six years. <laughs> and. And it says um, that during this long pregnancy, um, although she did not leave home, she traveled the same spiritual path and experienced the same difficulties as her husband, Siddhartha. And then on the very night when he comes to full awakening, she gives birth to Rahula. And she makes further prophecies that he has been awakened and that he's going to return to his um, family six years later. So there's a mirroring of a six-year pregnancy and then, then a, a prophecy about what will something will happen six years, in six years' time. So what's going on here? What's these, what are these mythical elements teaching or suggesting to us? Um, well, just this, the image of pregnancy um, as an image for what we do in our practice, what we're undertaking is in a sense to um, give birth to our own true nature. Um, there's a 17th century master who, who, who questions a female monk at one point and she, he asks her what was it like to nourish the spiritual embryo? So this, this phrase, nourishing the spiritual embryo, we can we can I think it's a powerful one in terms of what practice is. It's taking something that's there, that's that's deeply embedded in us, and bringing it to life, bringing it into this world where it can have a life um, in our relationships and our work and uh, our ways of of being. It's also. It's also pointing again to this, the deep connections, even though they're parted, and, and that parting was necessary for, for Siddhartha to, to undertake, there is this, this mirroring of Yashoda doing the same austerities um, as the Buddha. Um, When he eats very little, she eats very little. When he undergoes different austerities, she undergoes them. And that the, the final 
outcome of this is the birth of this child. Again, I think of the, the part of the story, the traditional story about Yashoda saying, Going, go and ask your father for your inheritance. This, um, this description of the, of the, the small child's um, birth after these years of austerities and, and, and struggles by his mother is pointing to this, this um, intimate connection of, of son to father. Of the, of the son inheriting um, what the father has, in a sense, um, brought, made possible again, has opened up the way. Um, Robert Thurman, um, in his book, he talks about the the the, the story of the Buddha's um, birth and and. Um, progress towards enlightenment as, as being a, as pointing to the fact that it was it was he he was a figure who who changed a culture he says all the images of the buddha's birth and youth symbolically announce a major shift in civilization he is described as having been conceived while his mother, Maya Devi, was on retreat, away from his father or any male, and then born in a blooming springtime garden where Maya Devi was away from, when while Maya Devi was away from her husband's palace. In fact, the story is that she goes back to her parents' place in order to, to give birth. This is a traditional practice. And then a detail that I hadn't remembered or, or uh, read before um, when the infant Buddha was presented at an ancestral temple the god images came to life stepped down from their pedestals in, and bowed in obeisance to him and he was named Siddhartha he who accomplishes his goals um, so the, the point here in the story is um, that he's in some sense he's not his father's son in in that um, he's representing a new way of being in the world so not the old um, hierarchical um, <coughs> brahmanic uh, world out of which he came which caste was very powerful and um, He's, in, a, in a sense, is pointing to his um, coming with something new that that had not been seen before. Um, in in dream dreams, the father stands for the the kind of or the king stands for the the, the ruling um, uh, kind of the the the. the The rules and structures of the time, and so in a sense, this Buddha is is um, uh, rebelling in some way against against the, that. Um, Thurman writes, um, 
Then came the great renunciation, Siddhartha's resolution to abandon wife and child, father and kingdom, his own duty, identity and property in order to pursue the meaning of living. He was willing to rupture the social fabric to set off what seemed to be a on what seemed to be a lost cause. And he has, to, he has to leave the city by stealth because his father's put triple guards everywhere to try and prevent him from leaving. And his father sends out, um, sends out uh, guards to try and bring him back. track him down and, and talk him into coming home. He says, the king had reason, duty and custom on his side. Siddhartha had nothing but a vague ancient, but vague ancient precedence and a grim determination to do the impossible, to understand the entire nature of life and death and to find a way out of suffering so he could teach it to others. It was after he left um, the palace, he crossed across the river, cut off his hair, um, took off his, his royal robes, handed them to his charioteer, and, and then headed into the forest to seek out the teachers, the best teachers he could find of the day. Now I'd like to um, have a quick look at um, the commentary that comes with this, this story. Each of the stories in this book uh, has a, a, a commentary of a, of a couple of pages by a, um, a woman Zen, uh, Zen or other stream of Buddhist, Buddhism uh, teacher. And this one is by Byakurin Judith Rajir. And um, so just a little bit of biographical material about her. She teaches in the Soto Zen tradition of Katagiri Roshi and is the guiding teacher at a Zen center in St. Paul, Minnesota called Clouds in Water Zen Center. And uh, she, she writes, Oh yes, yes, what a relief. I smiled as I read this newly excavated version of the Buddha's home leaving found in the Savastavadan literature. I immediately felt a relaxation in my body, the release of a stress I didn't even know I was holding. So um, this, this story comes from um, Savastavadan um, teachings. Um, the Savastavadins were um, were an offshoot of from um, uh, classical Pali teachings, and they existed in Kashmir and Gandhara, what is now Pakistan, um, and in Central Asia up until about the seventh century of our common era. 
Um, they, they were fairly early split off around the time of Ashoka, so that's the third century before our common era. Um, and they're seen as a kind of bridging a group between the classical teachings of the Pali Sutras and the Mahayana Sutras, which started to be um, sort of uncovered and uh, written around um, 100 um, AD. So that's where, the, where, that's where this story comes from. But she's expressing what probably many of us feel, the sense of, of um, a kind of relief in hearing this other version, less, a less um, uh, body-hating, um, woman-fearing um, version of the story. She says, Every time I had to tell the Buddha's early story in my teaching life, I gulped. In the post-feminist world of the 21st century, can we continue to tell stories from the past in which women are invisible or rejected? And, and there's definitely this element in the story, um, and it has its effect when people read about this. I remember reading an account of when, when Roshi Philip Kaplow first went to Poland. Um, this would have been in the late 60s, I guess. And it tells the story of this very, very intense young Polish man coming up and saying, I want to, I want to become a monk. I want to um, give up everything and just devote myself to the Buddha Dharma. And it turned out that he had a young child. And so um, Roshi Kaplow um, spent some time convincing him that that was where he needed to be not to be leaving, leaving his wife and child and, and um, becoming a monk. Uh, but you could excuse him for uh, taking that, that, that step or thinking that was the right step, given the stories um, that we read and that we're told. Then she asks the important question. She says, what needs to be renounced as we enter into a spiritual path? What needs to be renounced? We have to be careful about getting, not getting caught up on um, just the superficialities. She says, in the West, Buddhist practice is often an odd combination of monastic visits and householder lives. When I was ordained, I was already married and had two children. I did not leave my family, but I learned to practice with my story-filled life by transforming the basis of operation in my mind. I have had to work with my egocentricity, my attachments and clinging, and my greed, anger and delusion right in the middle of the mess of householder life and an, and an urban zendo. So much like a lot of us here, all of us, and all of us, if we're, if we're going to um, get some purchase on the practice, we have to see our home as our dojo, is, this, is really as the center of our practice.
when think of Yashodara too, even though she said, you must go, I let you go, do what you need to do. You can imagine she could still go through so much bringing up her baby on her own, admittedly in a, in a very um, comfortable environment with all the, all the support that she would need. But still, the, the, there would be an, an emotional residue, a longing there, and that would have been very much a part of what she, was, she would be struggling with, just as, as um, Siddhartha struggled with his own attachments and difficulties. She goes on, after 40 years of practice, I'm still practicing home leaving within the boundaries of a home as Yashodara did. I take heart from the story of a Tibetan teacher's mother who got enlightened, as she tells it, by practicing in the gaps of her daily life. Or as my root teacher, Katagiri Roshi, would encourage us by saying, in every moment, merge subject and object into the very activity that is arising. This is a very good, very good piece of advice that we can remember. In every moment, merge subject and object into the very activity that is arising. To become one with whatever we're doing. To, to question, if we're working on a koan, then to bring the question to whatever we're doing. To merge the question with the activity. So that moo questions moo. What is imbued into every activity? It was one of the things that I was reminded of in doing this this um, six days of, of um, retreat at home. Usually uh, we, we go away um, um, to, a, to a retreat place somewhere, but this time it felt better to, since I'd been away recently, to, to stay at home. And so I did extra sitting and uh, quite a lot of gardening and some, some cleaning and things like that as my work practice. But I was reminded that, that um, it's possible to, to sculpt our lives if we just um, bring some, some awareness to it. Um, of course, it's, it's harder often if we know we've got a short period of time, it's like a term intensive. We can, we can make bigger changes if we know it's only for a shorter time. But it's always possible for us to, to make choices in how we, how we work. One of the things that in this retreat that I did, of course, was um, not listening to the radio or playing music, but just being with whatever was arising in the mind at any given time. She goes on. The idea that drama practice requires the renunciation of attachments of ordinary life, family and work seems to come out of the privileged and one-sided point of view of the all-male founding fathers of Buddhism. Women simply can't afford to abandon the manifested world while we are still raising our children. 
It seems that in renouncing the world, the early Buddhists made women the so-called enemies of practice by making them the symbol of the form world. Our allure was considered dangerous to monks. Women with our blood, birth, noisy children, families, earthly bodies, life, creativity, love and sexuality were what needed to be renounced. Can this hold up in the evolution of 21st century Buddhism? And there are, in, in the, uh, the classical texts, there are quite a lot of pretty distasteful um, lists of what's wrong with females. And unfortunately also in some of the Mahayana ones. There are some telling details in the two myths of Buddhas leaving the palace. The translation of the name Rahula, um, Siddhartha and Yashoda's son, is quite different in different versions. In the Theravadan school, Rahula means fetter or hindrance, implying that a child is one of the ties that bind us, like a chain or shackle, to the illusory world. But in the Sarvastivadin version, Rahula means moon god, reflecting simply that he was born on the night of the full moon when the Buddha himself awakened. And as I said before, connecting him to his father and, and emphasizing that um, the awakening of, of the father is the son's birthright too. And of course the full moon being, being uh, right throughout Buddhism an image for this, this awakening. In the Sarvastivadin version of the story, the separation of Buddha and Yashoda was a sorrowful event. They loved each other, but they knew that there must be a separation. Yashoda saw in her dreams the possibility of Siddhartha's greatness. Out of love and for the sake of the liberation of all beings, she let Siddhartha go. This inevitable separation may have been a heart-rending truth for both of them. This is a great example of how a devastating loss can often initiate the spiritual journey as many of us have experienced. We can see this as a sorrowful event, their parting, but also there's a kind of joy in it. The fact that they, that they make love before they part um, points to this, this kind of a, um, a bittersweet quality and a seeing of, of sexuality as being part of, of life. Um, and this is, this is an important um, strand that is found in Zen teaching, even though it's, it has to be kind of brought out. But um, there's, one, there's, a, there's a koan uh, which, which um, deals with this that goes, um, our, our translation of it is, um, why is it that the crimson line of a clearly enlightened person never ceases to flow? Why is it that the crimson line of the clearly enlightened person never ceases to flow? There's another translation which maybe brings out the meaning a little bit more. It's, it's why are perfectly accomplished saints and bodhisattvas still attached to the red thread? So one of the points in this in this koan is, what are they talking about when they talk about the, the crimson line or the red thread? What does this mean? 
And then what does it mean to say that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are still attached to the red thread? There's also another another way it's translated, of where it's this red thread is is translated line of tears. So like the the red marks that that would appear if you you were to weep a lot that would appear on your um, on your face. So this is a pointing to another aspect of this red thread, the, the the suffering that goes with it, the vulnerability that comes to us as human beings embodied human beings, beings that, that are in relationship with others. And all of us, impermanent, ephemeral. She says, what I love about this story is that it honors the spiritual path of the home. Yashodara, the one who stayed home, dug into her own spiritual life right where she was. When I first had my babies, I laughed and told all my friends, child-rearing is just like going to a monastery. Everything you do is for the other, in, in, in quotes, and there is hardly a moment to think of yourself. Another Buddhist teacher who is a father commented, it's like my heart is running around outside my body. Becoming a mother completely connected me to the mystery of life. I could no longer be self-centered and my heart burst open. Of course, it doesn't, it, this doesn't apply only to um, bringing up a child. It can be, we can be broken open by um, caring for a parent or um, going through a, an illness with a spouse. Yashoda's separation from her husband and the pregnancy she went through without him meant that she was practicing against all odds. But as ordinary suffering can transform into wisdom and compassion. Years later, she and her son reunited with Buddha and had joined his Sangha. And this is an important point um, in this story. Um, and it, it applies whether we, we in, stick with the, the traditional telling of the story or this, or this later embellishment, is that eventually both the son and the wife join the Sangha. And it's pointing to, to what the Buddha's renunciation meant, in a sense, that in order for him to... to, um, to create and sustain through his teaching a, a bigger family, he had to abandon his narrow sense of family. In a, in a sense, he had, to, he had to get to the point where he could see all beings as um, his children or as his beloved. All birth is magic. In this legend, legend Yashodara giving birth on the same full moon night as the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree is a miraculous honoring of non-duality, the dynamic dance of man and woman, enlightenment and delusion, ordinary and sacred, birth and death. 
And then the editors um, always at the end of these chapters they add some questions. And here, here are a couple. Sometimes a hero's journey is made without ever leaving home. What invisible journeys have you made? What has home leaving meant for you? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org dot org dot nz